place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also now to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who was reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go examine him. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married, and therefore cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go into the highways and to the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. And this is Jesus' story about food as he's eating food with these men at a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. Actually, we're told he is the uh, ruler of the Pharisees. And this is how Jesus ate food. And, and I guess one of, our, one of our conclusions would be he, it would have been pretty entertaining to watch Jesus eat. Because in between him eating, he's saying a lot of things. And he says a lot of things that are very offensive. And it would have made for a great drama and entertainment during the dinner. This is how Jesus ate food. Uh, we are concerned because we know that it's an important thing. Uh, think about your influence in this world. You might say, I work so many hours a week. Or I have this obligation or this thing in my schedule. But you also eat three times a day, give or take. This is a ministry, right? We can all get behind. Whatever it is you do, it's simply taking what you do and pivoting it. Taking this meal time, this time where you can sit for a few minutes with somebody and make that count. Because that was a pattern of Jesus' life. 
There, there are not many great programs that maybe you could start or great ministries or 501c3s or nonprofits to change the world. But the encouraging word is Jesus didn't do that either. He ate with people intentionally, with wisdom, and he definitely didn't waste his time. He had odds with the people he was at table with today, and he went straight to it so that they would hear the real gospel. And so let's hear that today with a coin of phrase or a turn of phrase that we um, have probably all heard before, which is, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You've probably heard that before. It's not maybe the most uplifting um, phrase you ever heard. I, don't, I doubt that's probably crocheted on your pillow uh, in, your, uh, in your house, or you don't have that as a banner over your living room. Uh, maybe you do. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That phrase is important. It actually comes from the scriptures. It's used many other places now. It's quoted sometimes to summarize an Epicurean philosophy that flourished 300 years before Christ. But we could go backwards even further to find the origin of this phrase in Ecclesiastes 8.15. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through all the days of his life. So the concept is actually very pessimistic, you could say. It's um, saying essentially, all you have in this life is this life. Once you die, it is over. Therefore, be happy. Therefore, eat food and enjoy yourself. That's one way to eat food. That's one perspective on life, on the way to approach the whole meaning of it all. Now, Ecclesiastes, amazingly, is taking this assumption. The phrase is, everything under the sun. That is, if there was nothing else, if there was nothing else except what is here and any further than the sun, if you could not go beyond those realms, if nothing else existed past that, the scriptures actually are quite clear, then go ahead and start drinking because nothing matters and you're going to die. So enjoy it. Eat, drink, be happy for tomorrow we die. This comes from the word of God. It's to say a similar thing. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us and above is only sky. That's the song. That's the song of our age. That's the song of 2022, according to when the ball dropped in New York City. So therefore, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But there's a lot of icky things here. I uh, tend to eat with a lot of uh, toddlers in my life. And babies. And it can get pretty icky, you say. Uh, because it's everywhere. It's just everywhere. It's all over the face, floor, table, everything. But that's not nearly as disgusting as really what this is. If this is a metaphor for the way we eat, listen to the, all the icks right now. This is pessimistic, first off. To think, to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
Very pessimistic view of life. All it is is just this here and now. It's nihilistic. Tomorrow we die. That is nihilism. There's no purpose. There is no good. There is no meaning. There is no gospel. It is hedonistic. Eat and drink. Enjoy your life. Do what you want to do now. Because who's to tell you otherwise? It's just the sun, you and me. Do whatever you want. Hedonistic, pessimistic, nihilistic. It's humanistic. It assumes that man, you and I, are the sum total of our life. That we create our own values. And that because there is anything here except us, all we should do is just enjoy what we have. Make food. Make eating this kind of way. The phrase happens also again in Scripture, in Isaiah 22, where the whole city of Jerusalem was just spared from being destroyed by the Assyrians. And instead of the people interpreting the fact that they almost were entirely wiped out as a sign of humility, sackcloth, ashes, and repentance toward God, realizing that that was a potential judgment that was spared from them, they instead decided to throw a party. Kind of like... In our culture, often when you say, maybe there's a very large pandemic or people are really sick and everything, and then you think, well, what's the point? There's really no reason to consider that maybe we should be humble, consider our mortality, consider the beauty of Jesus Christ, grab onto him as he's revealed to us in the gospel. Instead, the people responded and said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Oh, and that frustrated Isaiah. That's how you are going to respond to God's mercy. Just to eat and drink more and forget about the reason why he spared you. The reason that maybe there is a hope. Maybe there really is life. It's frustrating. But that is where the phrases come in scripture. And you wouldn't think that that's so much of a scripture phrase. Because there's so much more in Scripture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we find Jesus taking that concept and absolutely unraveling it, transforming it. That we would eat and drink, but not for that reason. Not for tomorrow that we would die. That aphorism does not hold true for him. Here we find Jesus eating and drinking. He is claimed to be a glutton and a drunkard because he is eating and drinking so much by his adversaries. But here we find Jesus eating and drinking and then he died. And then he rose and he kept eating. He changed the whole perspective. The gospel is a gospel of resurrection, a gospel of life. He changes the phrase from being, let us eat and drink Because tomorrow we die. Therefore as Christians we say. Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we will live. And therefore let us eat and drink. Let us go about our days. Under that unalterable reality. That we will not die. We will live forever. And everything we do here. Matters. It is very important. Even down to the casual lunch. It is very important. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we live. This is how Jesus has transformed it all. Because Paul says quite the opposite. Paul traveled his whole life preaching the gospel. Giving everything he had to it. Being flogged and shipwrecked and stoned and persecuted. And he says something remarkable in 1 Corinthians 15. 
What do I gain, humanly speaking, under the sun? What do I gain, humanly speaking, he says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus? If I did any, give myself any task like this? He says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's right there with him. Listen, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, then nothing matters. Do what you want. Enjoy the vain pleasures of our life because it is over and we die. Contrary to that, Paul did everything, gave his whole life to this because we eat and drink and we do not die. It all matters. Many eat food like mortals. We should never eat food like mortals. That is, with the nihilistic consolation that at least this steak tastes good. At least this wine is getting me drunk. At least this is helping me to cope through my Mondays. That is how mortals eat food. We are not mortals. We eat food as not a consolation, a mild little consolation of all of our toil and futility in life. We eat food as a celebration, a, cel a glorious celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the culmination of it all is that he gave us bread and wine to symbolize all of our eating and to symbolize the symbol of coming to that great table in which we will be resurrected before him at his heavenly throne. It is all tied to this food. And therefore, everything we do is important, and it is for a celebration. Meals matter because people matter. People matter because Christ matters. It's not the food. It's not the eating. It's part of the reality that people matter. It's food with people. And people matter because Christ matters, because he rose from the dead. And there is potential to have real life in his name. So Jesus has transformed this phrase, and now he will unravel this concept before his guests and the person who invited him, the host of that dinner. We eat and drink for tomorrow we live. And so here he is at the Pharisee's house. This <coughs> Pharisee is a ruler of the Pharisees, and he's well-connected, evidently, well-off, established, and has a lot of friends. And here we find Jesus, particularly, consider this, Jesus is eating with his enemies. He's not keeping his enemies at arm's length. He's not talking about them behind their back. He actually is talking to them. He actually is going over to the house knowing they don't like him. Knowing they are opposed with one another. Consider that for your life and mine. Would you eat with your enemies? Would you eat with those who are opposed to you? For here we find that he has enemies. They are, we're told, watching him carefully. That doesn't seem like a very fun meal. You don't want to come over to someone's house and feel like you're out of place and they're judging you and it's all uptight and weird. Just as prim and proper as far as politeness. But these people are actually out to get him. It's not an enjoyable meal, but Jesus does it because he's loving. Food was the avenue for him to reach into people's lives. And not only that, we find that there are many lawyers present. Specialties in the law. They're looking to find him. To make some mistake as far as the law so they could discredit him, marginalize him, and move him along. And so if he were not to come to this meal, he would not expose himself to that criticism and potential slander or libel. 
But he doesn't care. He came anyway because Jesus sees food as an opportunity to love people. And so there's a random man. We're not told where he comes from or why or how. If he was planted or intended to be there on purpose, there's a man there (coughs) with edema. We're called dropsy. The word essentially comes from water, meaning he had some type of water disease. So people tend to think that he had swelling or some type of disease in his legs or his lungs or whatnot. So this man has dropsy and he presents him. And Jesus asks two questions because he is obviously wise enough to see, understanding the situation for what is laid before him. And he knows what they're trying to do. And so he simply asks, is it lawful? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And there's no response. Silence. And he says, he pulls them out for the hypocrisy. He says, if you had a son or even an animal of your own, like an ox, who fell into a well, you would rescue them on the Sabbath, that day when you're not supposed to work or do any labor. How much more would you not rescue a man, love a man, save a man? And so he heals the man. The problem is that they didn't understand the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. It is a day that is made for us. Think of this. There's Matthew 12, where Jesus explicitly says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is, God commands you. He commands you to stop. He commands you to relax. He commands you to not get in the rat race. And to be honest, our lives really aren't, a rat race just sounds way too exciting. How about, what if I could tell you this morning that you're not a hamster and your life is not a wheel? Your weeks, your cycles, they are not vanity. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die and everything's vain. Not here. Every day counts. Your work counts. But you are more than a job. You are more than a paycheck. You are more than a work week. He is freeing you to get off the wheel, the cycle, the vanity of life, and look up to heaven that there is a day to stop, a day to rest, a day to worship, a day to eat and be with friends and family, a day to love God and to love men. And here is Jesus Christ saying, if it is the Sabbath, and we are to love God of most of all other days that now my mind and my schedule is completely free to be with God's people, to worship him this week, to remember my eternity, to look forward to the heaven to where I'm going because my life is not a cycle of meaningless. It is a forward progression of trajectory going somewhere. Therefore, if I am to look at God and love him this way and look at my fellow man and love him this way, why, how could I not heal him on this day? For this healing is only an image of the ultimate healing in which there will be a new heavens and new earth and a final Sabbath and rest in which everything will be made right and whole and united in Christ. If we reject this, I mean in the most practical sense of like literally our Sundays, we are forgetting everything of what the real Sabbath is, which is heaven. It should be a foretaste, a a, a a landing of some precious food on your tongue that tastes like nothing else in this world to remind you, you are going somewhere. Jesus Christ is Lord. Nothing else matters. 
Do not. We are enslaved by our own vain ambitions. We go fast food eating all the time, which is fine the other days. There is a reality in which you stop. You relax. You slow cook your food. You invite friends over and you recline. And you remember that you are not a cog in a machine. You are a man, a woman created in the image of God to, to glorify him and to worship him and to shine as bright as the sun in his glory at some future state. And your life, your schedule, your very minutes must reflect that reality that God has caused us to eat like this. Because tomorrow we will live. We will live with him forever. And we must practice for it now. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. There will be a day to rest. We must not forget. And so Jesus speaks to all the people present, and he sees the scenario of how it's unfolding, and he knows what they're trying to do to him. And he goes, particularly not for the person who invited him, the host. He goes to speak to all the guests, everyone else there. That's what I'm saying. It had to be fun to eat dinner with Jesus. He just would go at it. Don't talk about religion and politics at the table. Jesus is like, well, that's not going to work. That's kind of what I do. Here's his guests. The parable he gives them. Uh, for all who were invited, because we're told he noticed how they sat at the table. They wanted the place of honor. He said, when you're invited, do not sit in a place of honor. Someone more distinguished than you could, could come. And then that would embarrass you because the host will have to come, stand next to you and say, friend, give this seat to the other person who's come here. So the reverse, Jesus says, when you are invited to a place, sit in the lowest place possible. Sit at the bottom, the very end of the table, the place where there is the least distinction. Not at the center or the right or the left of the host, which would have been the place of honor. Don't even presume it. Be unassuming. Be humble. When you do that, you will actually be exalted. You will be put in a place of honor because someone will come alongside and say, friend, move up higher. Move up higher. And then the presence of everybody, you get to stand up and move up higher. Jesus took it all immediately and made it spiritual to realize the fact of the kingdom of the gospel. Do you realize that the only way you enter this kingdom, the only way you enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ, this upside down kingdom where he says in his blessings are those who are poor will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. Those who are merciful will find mercy. Listen, meek people do not inherit the earth. Meek people do not own all the property in Manhattan. Meek people do not run great militaries and conquer the world. Meek people don't do that. That's not how this world works. Jesus said, yes, it actually is because I'm the Lord of the world. And I will make it work that way. And so he's preparing them for the kingdom proper. He's preparing them to know this is how you actually get into the party. There is a great party, and there are dinner guests, but all those who are not meek, all those who are presumptuous, cannot come. Anyone who would think to sit at the head of the table is not invited. See, the gospel, the reason the gospel is presented to us in Christ in this way is repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, repent of your sins is take the lowest possible place in that table. 
That is, you have no life. You are under God's just wrath and condemnation for all of your sin. You have no right to lift your eyes to heaven. You have no right to invoke his name. You deserve to die. You are dead in your sin. If you start there, if you actually really get the gospel, so that when you repent of your sin, it's not because you didn't tuck your shirt in and know I'm a sinner. No, because you are a wretched, wretched, selfish sinner. And to 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 the superlative sense. That is the, Jesus' wisdom is take that. Take that in. That's the wisdom of the gospel. Assume the lowest. Go as low as you can. That's where Jesus finds you. That's where he actually, when you humble yourself that way, the principle of the reversal of the kingdom that undoes the whole world. In Acts 17, it says these men have been preaching the gospel and they've been turning the world upside down. Well, the reason they were turning the world upside down is because the gospel is this principle. Humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Exalt yourself, you'll be broken and humbled. And so we humble ourselves in Christ and he exalts us to righteousness and life and holiness and every benefit that he gives us at the cross. That's the reverse of it all. And Jesus is saying, this dinner, this, this laying out of this table is a metaphor for the way the world always works. People jostling to get ahead, realizing all that matters is his life. I need to get ahead. I need to sit at the closest part of the table. I need to make a connection with one guy who's got more money than me, or maybe I can make a business deal with him. Ancient meals in the world like this were all about this. It was not just about eating dinner at Thanksgiving with family. It was about politics and money and business and and. Pride and reputation. So you had to sit at a certain table and you had to invite the right kind of people. Jesus takes all of that as a metaphor or a microcosm of how this whole world really works. Is that the sinful heart wants to take a big, flat, humble table where kings and slaves can sit eye to eye and turn it into a big, long ladder, a striated pecking order of hierarchy of who's better and who's lower. And so here Jesus is undoing all of that. Maintaining the distinctions, but not making them primary. Then he goes and he turns his perception, he turns his attention now, not from the guests, but to the host, the one who invited him. He says to him, when you give a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, do not invite your rich neighbor. Don't invite those who could repay you. Don't look for anything. Just love people. Don't think about it. Don't calculate it. Just love them. When you actually have a feast, go ahead. (coughs) Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Invite those who cannot repay you. You will be blessed, he says. And this is the beautiful transformation of it all. Think this way. Let us eat this way. Let us be a church this way. He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus is not bashful in incentivizing us to love. Rewards are good. God is watching everything you do. Everything you do matters. Meals matter because people matter. People matter because Christ matters. Christ matters because he rose from the grave and your resurrection is wrapped up in him. Therefore, how you eat your meals is directly, causally connected to your final resurrection and the blessings or lack of rewards or blessings that you could have on actually just loving people with all the blessing God gives you. Food, clothing, shelter, home. Open it up. Especially be cautious to those who cannot repay you. Do not look for rewards. That's how you get the rewards. 
when you love people just to love people. See, this is um, a, a huge critique, right? As he is, remember the context. A ruler of the Pharisees, which is already the upper class. The Pharisees are an upper class. He's the ruler of the Pharisees. He's at a dinner party with all these influential people, many of them lawyers and teachers of the law. Which are, in our day, you would think, well, those are just like theologians. No, those are like, like the ones who are like Supreme Court judges. Like the real big, the big guys. Table with all of these. And then he goes to the host and says, why don't you invite all these guys here? That, and that's pretty rude. And that's a very awkward situation for everyone to be in. And I love this part. I love this part where this man, we're just told some guy's reclining. And I just love this because when you get in like awkward situations, someone, you know, maybe you're like that. You ha- you're that kind of person that like, oh, I got to say something. This is, too, this is too tense and too awkward. And maybe no one's talking or maybe it's a really elephant in the room moment. And someone's just got to say something to break the ice or transition the conversation. Uh, and, this, and of course, we, we have one person like this. I love what they did. And I love how Jesus just completely destroyed it. Um, he says one reclined, uh, heard all this, and it's really tense and he says blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God just this this happy little ecumenical kind of yes it'll be great someday you know around here with all my all of my friends who are just like me and think just like me and it'll be great someday to go into the heaven of God the kingdom some way way distant down in the future we'll go down there the kingdom of God and we'll eat bread with everybody it'll be great everyone will be blessed and happy which is so nice when you can just take all the teachings of Scripture and project them thousands of years in the future so they have no consequence on your daily life today. And then Jesus says, I'm glad you brought that up. And he goes into another parable. Since we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, he says, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many, many guests. The time of the banquet, he sent servants and there were two invitations for these great parties. The first was like our wedding invitation of an RSVP or save the date. And then there'd usually be an invitation to follow to say the time is now. You know, they didn't have email, of course. The food is literally getting made right now. It's going to be ready shortly. Come on. And so there was always a second invitation to show up. So this second invitation of the servants coming are coming to the people who already RSVP, who already committed to say, I'm going to be there. I will be at this wedding. And so the offense is even higher to say, now they're backing out. Everything is ready, the servants say. And the excuses are, we have a field that needs inspected. I just bought five yoke of oxen. I need to examine them. And a man says, I'm married. All these excuses fall flat. They're lame. They're nothing. If you're rich enough to buy five oxen yokes, you're rich enough to have servants. You could send someone else along the way. Just because you're married doesn't mean you can't go to another party. All these excuses, it is, it, is the, it is the anti-type of what happens on a Sunday. There are some who just want to worship Jesus because they love Jesus. And their worship is worshiping Jesus. And some would have to get out of bed. Some would have to get dressed. It's, it's too much. I can't go to that party. Jesus invites you to come. They say, no, I couldn't. I'm... Too busy. The, that's a precursor to the warning Jesus is giving. That all of that is going out there into the distant future. This man says, well, the kingdom of God someday will all eat bread together and everything will be happy. But I'm going to be living my life this way, the way I eat with all my friends. 
Jesus brings it back to them presently and says, as Jesus started his gospel ministry saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand now. I am here. I am the king. I am the Messiah. The kingdom has come. If the kingdom has come, all of the prophecies and promises of the kingdom that is to be future are now breaking into the present. Therefore, we have no excuse to abstract or deject or move all of these principles of how we should live our life in view of the eternal resurrection of Jesus in our present day, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so he's critiquing all of them this way, and the man is angry in the parable that everyone snubbed him and refused his invitation to this banquet. And he says, go into the streets and the alleys. That is, all the poor, the crippled, the lime, and blame. Those who are the last. Those who are the lowest. Those are the ones that get exalted. Those who don't think of themselves, of anything about themselves. Those who are humble. Who are humble. Who are able to actually hear the word, you are a sinner. And actually to say, yes, that makes sense. Those people that can take that. Can take the offense of the gospel. They're the ones that actually get the invitation. And they need encouragement. They are humble. They don't think they're some, themselves worthy. Then he says, even go to the highways and the hedges. Those who aren't even Jews, those who haven't been part of this, this story at all, of the gospel, get everyone across the whole world. Go out everywhere and bring them to this banquet, this feast. And yes, they are humble. They are meek. They are mild. They are unassuming. They are the ones who are poor, the broken of the earth. They are not the rulers of the earth. There's no reason they think they should be invited to this kind of banquet. They might not have the nicest clothes for this kind of banquet. And then he says, compel them to come. Do not let them be bashful in the humility. Do not let them think themselves not worthy. If they think themselves not worthy, that's what makes them worthy. The other ones that think themselves worthy are not here because they have goats and ox and they got married. They love this world. They eat and drink. For tomorrow they die. They think everything they have in this life is this world. I can't go to that banquet. Don't you know I have ox at home? I can't go be with Jesus. Don't you know that I'm living a life down here? What is your life? Jesus is saying, what is this meal? What are we doing here? The ones who have nothing are the ones that actually get the invitation in the mail. The gospel comes to them and they say, I can take that. But I don't have any nice clothes. And the servants are told to come and compel them. Come as you are. Isaiah says, come and eat food free. Drink wine that costs no money at all. I'm holding this for you, for those ones who can't pay. This is the banquet at the end. You see, as we close, Jesus, oh, he's so beautifully wise. He knew what he was doing. He's speaking to these Pharisees and scribes who know their Torah. They know their prophets. The end of the age, the kingdom that was to come, was likened in the scriptures to a great banquet and a feast. And so naturally Jesus takes that and pivots it to drive it right home to you and I. Isaiah 25, 6 and 8. This is what that man was trying to say when he said, Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Oh, don't you love it when people use religious platitude to avoid obligation and actually believe the gospel? Blessed is everybody. Matthew 25. uh, Isaiah 25. He has the vision of a mountain of the Lord. He will make this for all peoples. We're told it is a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. 
rich food full of marrow, well-aged wine that is well-refined. This is the wine that God makes. This is like that wedding of Canaan where no one tasted wine that good before when Jesus turned the water to wine. Be invited to this kind of meal where God will eat with you on his mountain, in his heavenly place. And what's beautiful about this meal is what you eat and what he eats. This is why we eat, so that we might live. We're told that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all nations. That garment when a body dies and you put the garment over the whole body so that you don't stare at the dead body. That thing, that veil that lays over every dead corpse. He shall swallow up death forever. He shall swallow up death forever. There will be a table where you will drink this sweet wine and he will drink your death. He will swallow your death and you will swallow his blessings. You will drink his wine and eat his food and he will consume your own corruption. No longer will anyone say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink this meal for tomorrow we live. For is it this meal that Jesus swallows up our death? So may the tables of our life reflect this reality, reflect this parable. The tables of our life. That all the nations were told. All the nations are under this veil of death. Everyone born of Adam. Therefore in this church. If you are a person who is actually going to be dying sometime soon. You're invited to this church. If you can live forever. Good luck to you. But if you're going to die. If you are born of Adam. Those are the people we eat with. May our tables reflect this table. That our tables would be extended to those who are in the streets and the alleys. The crippled, the blind, the lame, the mute, the dejected. That is the ones we eat with particularly. The ones we look to without any return. That our table, we would compel people to come and realize you are worthy to have this meal with Jesus. You are righteous. You are clean. You can come. You can come and eat. This is the place where he swallows up all of our sin, all of our death. And so Jesus took that phrase, put it right on uh, their heads and made them think it, deal with it. And the last consideration is this. They wanted to make it future. They wanted to make the kingdom of God future. How blessed it would be to all, everybody, the people. Because if you can't eat with people now, if you can't genuinely sit across the table for someone in love now, Don't assume that that means everything's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. You can't push it. If you can't sit with the lame and the blind and and the sinners and the tax collectors now, well, they're the ones that are going to be at this table. So the man wants to say, let's push it all down the road that someday we will eat bread together in unity, but right now I'm going to eat with my friends to do my stuff. No, no, no. The way we eat as a church is we realize that Jesus Christ has rose from the dead already. He has already ascended to the highest place. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He is the king right now. The kingdom of God has already come and is coming. And therefore our tables, 
Our tables now reflect that table from which he will unite the whole world together and all nations will eat. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death and he will swallow it whole. Let us eat because tomorrow we will live. Father, Lord, we pray that you would let this sink to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be hospitable and loving and charitable out of everything that came from being invited to your banquet. Father, I pray that our love for you, week by week expressed here, would be something, something of what it is like in heaven. From week to week, Lord, let it be more true. Particularly next week, Lord, as we take communion to realize that we are preparing for this great table. Lord, I pray that anyone here who doesn't think himself worthy, think of herself worthy, that's exactly the person that should be there. Father, I pray that anyone here who has not committed their life to Christ would do it now. In Jesus' name, amen.